0: I'm going to have a rant, I'm afraid. Now that I'm retired, now that I'm not a bureaucrat anymore, I can say whatever I want. So I'm going to tell you the story about Darren. I used to work at the front line in an earlier center, Milton Keynes, many years ago. I set up the center. We had huge amounts of parental involvement. We had you know, a really lovely environment. We had parents involved in selecting staff. We had parents on the management. We did all this stuff that was very unusual in those days. This was around 1980, so it was during the last, well, the last recession, but one actually, when manufacturing industries were collapsing all over the place when there was very high male unemployment and very high unemployment in those jobs where you didn't need a huge amount of education, but you could get a reasonable amount of money. You know, the coal fields, the car industry, the steel industry, those are the jobs that, that, that went then. So the story is about Darren. And those days, we did work on gender. You know, the old days when we did work on girls and boys and all the children's books, the girls' books shorter than the boys, and the boys were always leading and all that. So we did this work on gender. And Darren's mum said to me Darren was four years old, white, very low income estate. And Darren's mum said to me that this was really, really important because perhaps when Darren grew up, his wife would be working and he wouldn't be. The child was four years old and his mother was responding to the environment around him by thinking, it's not so bad if he doesn't work. Now I compare that to many, many years forward when my glittering career is in full swing and I'm at the department for whatever it was at the time, I think education and skill, because it changed names so many times. And a colleague of mine in the department, the next day was taking his daughter to Cambridge for her interview. And he explained to me how in the car on the way, he would tell her what it's like because he went to Cambridge. Now, he's being a good parent. The problem is she's being a good parent. She's not feckless. She really loves her child. Both these people are good parents. Now, my hope for social mobility giving those two stories is pretty low. And that's the issues that we have to think about when we think about reading, literacy, cognitive ability, skills, and social mobility. Because that girl did get into Cambridge, and I can bet Darren didn't. I, I don't know what Darren's doing now, but he's, you know, he's probably about the same age, actually, given the timing. So, so why is reading important? Well, these are all the things that you know. I think the most severe form of social exclusion is the inability to be heard, and certainly those people who can't read, have absolutely no chance of being heard, and more and more, again, different from even 30 or 40 years ago, engagement in the modern world is dependent on some level of literacy. It's very hard to imagine, and I, I actually remember as a four-year-old going around and beginning to be able to read the names on shops, and what a revelation that was. You know, so if you try to, or all you need to do is go to Greece or Israel or Russia, and you get some sense of what it's like to be illiterate. You know, all of a sudden, you know, I, I was, uh, for, when I worked for Save the Children, I went to Kathmandu and when I had to get back to where I was with the cab, of course, I had no way of explaining to him what the address was because the text, it wasn't even the same text. So that, you know, that feeling is a really terrifying feeling for an adult. And I suppose people learn how to do it, and people learn a whole range of skills in trying to suppress that and not let anyone know that they can't read. But it is, in terms of engagement, it is the most extreme form of exclusion. And, of course, interestingly enough, in the work that we did at the Social Exclusion Task Force on prisons, uh, work that was done by the Prison Reform Trust and Mencap, showed that the most bullied prisoners were the prisoners with the lowest level of, of, of reading ability. So even in an environment in prison, you know, you're really at the bottom of the heap. Yeah. So we're talking about very, very severe levels of exclusions. But I think that we have to put it into a context of much wider life chances and other disadvantages. So life itself. Where I live in Milton Keynes, probably not unlike Damien's constituency, because it's southeast of England. It's not particularly poor, But there are enough pockets of poverty, so the difference in life expectancy between the richest and the poorest wards is nine years. And, of course, the school attainment levels matches on to the life expectancy levels in exactly the way you would assume. Now, the really interesting one was the correlation between GCSE results and obesity. Again, almost a direct correlation, you know, schools with higher levels of obesity, had lower GCSE results, but I I did this this conference for Michael Martin Health Inequality, and I explained that there was one secondary school in Milton Keynes that bucked the trend where there were fat kids who also did well on their GCSEs. It was a Catholic school because they took kids from a much wider catchment. What was embarrassing was it was a man in the audience who sent his kids to that school. <laughs> so, yeah, St Paul's. But anyway, I mean that, those you know, it isn't just literacy. It's a very wide range of inequalities that tend to clump together. And health inequalities and educational inequalities do clump together. So you live less long. You actually die younger. Um, and functional literacy more common among poor people. And in the developing world, because, again, it's survival. Um, female literacy is key to birth spacing and child survival. And the whole argument about powdered milk isn't just that breast milk is better. It's that women in developing countries, if they can't read, they can't read the instructions, and they don't mix it properly, so they give very diluted versions of the powdered milk so the children aren't getting the nourishment. So, you know, in the, in the first Gulf War, when we bombed something in Iraq and um, Saddam Hussein said that it was a powdered milk factory it wasn't a munitions factory I was thrilled that they bombed a powdered milk factory <laughs> I thought that was a fantastic thing to do for child health so anyway, you know, but, but you can see the point I'm making that, that it, literacy is part of the story but it links to a whole range of other stories about inequality and the story, you know, so can the cycle be unbroken I, you know, here's the You can read the slide, but the main part of the story is that early education works, and it is universal, and it works to shift the curve, but it doesn't narrow the gap and that's a really important point. It doesn't narrow the gap between the richest and the poorest. It lifts the poorest above the point where they're not likely, you know, you know, where they're likely to fail at school. So it's incredibly important, but it has to be high quality. And for the poorest kids, the boost at age five is about eight months. So it does make the biggest difference because that gap would have widened if you didn't have early education, when they go into school. So it is a really, really important part of the story. Home learning environment is much more important, three times the impact size of early education, three times the impact size, but I think we don't know how to do it, and I just get irritated when people think this is an easy thing to do. Because if only telling people what to do worked, you know, we would have solved this problem a long time ago. You know, I, I know what makes a good parent. I'm sorry, I can stand up here and tell you that. We, we used to not say that. We used to be signed of embarrassed and ashamed, and that was middle class values. Roll on middle class values, because we get the good jobs. You know, anyone who argues about middle class values, their kids go to university. You know, they're protecting this space for their children. So I think it's a nonsense to argue about about those things. It's about what's going to equip kids to do well. And the problem is the critical time for language development, which has an incredible impact on literacy skills, is zero to two. And my view is that the the biggest fail... I'm really proud of a lot of things that we did during the Labor Administration. I'm very, very proud of a lot of things we did. But I do think we failed babies. And and my story on this is that when I entered the department in 1999, uh, the Department for Education at the time thought children were born at five, and they weren't called children, they were called pupils. And we didn't talk about children, we talked about pupils, because pupils are connected to an institution that we had control over. But the problem with children is we don't have control over all those other aspects of their lives. Of course, the vast majority of their life is outside of school. By the time I left the department in 2006, we thought children were born at two but we really really in my view we failed babies the area where we didn't fail babies that i'm particularly proud of is 9 months paid maternity leave and luckily no one said it's universal Shh, but don't <laughs> tell anyone cuz they might want about it <laughs> but protecting that first year for babies is enormously important it's enormously important And the difficulty is what do we do in those first year, the first two years, that encourages the kind of language skills that then will lead to literacy skills, good as the early language efficacy. Actually, I I, I won't say what his name is, but it's quite startling that a a, a minister of education in Australia in one of the states said to me that it was rather counterintuitive that you had to talk to children before they could talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's very weird. Very, very weird. Yeah. But, yeah, 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 if people think that, then you, yeah, you have to worry. So what, what, what do parents do that works? Read to their babies, we've heard about that. Sing to their babies, trips to the library. Count the cutlery while setting the table. Do you remember doing that? I bet you all did that with your children and said, how many people are there, so how many forks do we need? We always used to tease my grandmother. Oh, of course, I'm American, but my, my grandparents are English. And my grandmother always used to say, how many shall I lay for? We always thought that was hilariously funny. <laughs> She never got the joke. <laughs> but that, you know, I mean, but you know, she'd ask us children that, yeah. So but you also use language to soothe and comfort and praise and love. And of course these are big difference in class. You know, they've done really long language studies about how many positive comments a children hears, how many negative comments a child hears. This is all before the age of three. And it's all about, does this encourage them to speak or not? And the other thing that, that only parents can do is talk and reflect on everyday experiences. You know, because no matter how good the nursery or the daycare center or the you know, early education center is, they won't know what you did at the weekend that you can remember. So I'll be really rude and tell, you know, tell a story about my own son when he was three and a half and we went to visit my uncle, who lived um, in in Kingston. And my uncle took him for a walk along the Thames. And three days later, I was talking to a friend about something, and the word Mississippi came up. And Nathan said to me, he was three and a half. Nathan said to me, I saw a Mississippi River boat, and I said, Oh, was that when you were walking with Uncle Alfred? You see, a teacher wouldn't have known that he was walking with Uncle Alfred. And that, and he said, Yes. And then he said. The wheels. The river must have been very shallow for those wheels to go along the ground. <laughs> <laughs> this is a remarkable thing for, if, if, if you think about what he had to know about maths, what he had to understand about the depth, all this stuff. And of course what's interesting about child language and cognitive development, because our only insights into cognitive development are through language, is that I only knew how complex his thinking was because he got it wrong. If he'd explained exactly how it worked, I would have assumed my uncle told him. But it was because he made his own theory of the world. And it's children's abilities to make theories of the world that are so exciting. Going back to my my nursery experience, another child, not, not Darren, Matthew, who we had this, again, gender, we had this jigsaw of a really tall guy with a big mustache doing the washing up. And and Matthew sits down at the table. He starts laughing hysterically. And I said, what's so funny, Matthew? He said, that lady has a mustache. (laughs) His theory of the world was more powerful that women do the washing up than that women have mustaches. So what can be done? I think highly targeted programs like family nurse partnerships can make a difference, but they can't make a difference in shifting the curve on a community basis because thank heavens... Teen pregnancies are actually quite rare. No matter what you read about in any given area, they will be in, in the tens. You know, they are very, so, so it isn't a, a program that is going to shift the curve, but it is a program that is very well-targeted, first-time teen mothers at groups of children who evidence tells us are at very high risk of poor outcomes. Um, home learning environment, I think, is very difficult to shift. And I think it's very interesting that, you know, that, that telling a parent to read, even if they do read to them, if it's seen as a chore, if it isn't that reading for pleasure, if it isn't about the warmth and the cuddling and all, you know, it, it's not going to have the same impact. It just won't. And I think targeting quality early years money at the poorest areas is okay. I mean, the elbowed middle-class parents, bring them on. Because the kids do best in mixed environments. Head Start, we know this from the United States, you know, Head Start is so highly targeted that they have to bus, Head Start's highly targeted, Harlem's become gentrified, so they have to bus kids from the Bronx into Harlem for the Head Start program because there aren't enough poor kids left in Harlem. Now, this is how targeted it is, but the results of Head Start are not that great because the kids aren't mixing with other children who have a rich language. The kids aren't mixing with other kids who are used to handling books. The kids, you know, these are three- and four-year-olds. So the mix is enormously important, and it's another argument about universality. It's a very, very difficult issue. Some small and some big ideas. Um, We need a much bigger emphasis on zero to two. I've said that already. I think we need to sweat the assets of midwives. I think we need to do much more booking in period on family assessment, on what sorts of advice, you know, while she's doing the blood pressure and the blood tests and all that, what are your hopes for your baby? What do you think is really important? Do you have any books? Have you, what age do you think you should read to a child? You know, eight months, seven months? You know, a lot of people... You know, those sorts of things are really, really important. I think Bookstart is enormously important, but Bookstart is particularly important for that eight-month and the two-year-old one because these are before they're near anything statutory. Three-year-olds have access... You know, the the uptake of the universal offer for three-year-olds is now well into 95%. It's the babies I'm worried about. As it's actually targeting costs money because you need bureaucrats to decide who is eligible and who isn't. More bureaucrats. Great. Great. <laughs> um, greater opportunities in GP surgeries. Uh, a mother with an 18-month-old will see the health visitor once a year, but she'll see the GP probably four or five times a year. So what goes on? And you know, sweat the asset. This is a fabulous, fabulous country in terms of the universal services we have. We don't use them enough. We have to put the services for young children where young children are likely to turn up. And I would say that that's GP surgeries again, midwifery, amazing uptake, no stigma. And I, my own view is that stigma is overplayed. If it's good enough, they'll lie to get it. Um, increased child benefit for under Well, we can drop that one now, can't we? Um, and, but I do think a stronger emphasis on employment for mothers of three plus with development programs with mothers for younger children. I do believe very, very strongly in the employment story. I think if you, you know, the only way not to be poor, I wish there were other ways not to be poor. If you've got any ideas about how not to be poor, except having a job, let me know. But it's unlikely you're going to win the lottery and not most of us, you know many of, most of us don't have unknown relatives who are going to leave us loads of money. You know. So, you know, employment is enormously important if we're about an anti-poverty strategy. So um, just to leave you with the last rant, if inequality is the problem, do we solve it by ameliorating the impact of poverty? or reducing inequality. And of course, what Dorling and Wilkins, I heard Danny Dorling speak the other day, and I found it quite depressing because basically what he said was, was that we had failed because inequality hadn't shifted. Now, if it hadn't shifted, maybe it would have been wider if we hadn't done all the things that we did, because I think we did some very, very good things. But on the other hand, I think that we we, we confuse cause and effect and we confuse correlation and cause. Confusing a correlation of not doing something with a poor outcome and the sort of, well, why doesn't that thing happen? So I think there is a much wider problem, and I go back to the story of Darren where I started, which is that at the end of the day, we will all in this room protect the spaces for our children. And social mobility, if you're talking about a zero-sum game in quintiles, somebody has to come down for somebody to go up. But if you're talking about relative mobility, it has to be the case because of arithmetic. Even I know that, and my maths wasn't that good. Somebody has to go down. And the reason that countries like the U.S. and the U.K. have such poor social mobility is the steps go between the quintiles are very steep, The consequences, you know, when you have a huge gap between the richest and the poorest, the consequences of those movements are absolutely dire. And I will protect the space for my kid. And that's the problem. The problem is us. Yeah. I will protect the space. So the way in which we deal with that, I don't think it's the only thing you do. I think there's loads more we can do on under the twos. There's loads more we can do through the school system. I don't believe it's all over by four. I think that, you know, never too early, never too late. But at the end of the day, I do believe the fundamental problem is the incredible Span between the richest and the poorest in this country, and that unless we think about that at the same time of doing all the other good things that I think we should do, we fundamentally won't crack the problem. Thank you very much.